You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 6th day of March, 2011. I would like to take this opportunity to invite all of the listeners, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos created and conducted by myself in the past, and links to other websites that I support and that support The Corbett Report. I would also like to take this opportunity to thank all of those listeners who have been subscribed to the iTunes Store version of the Corbett Report podcast feed and have written in in recent days to tell me that the feed is no longer updating. I have checked into it and found that for no apparent reason whatsoever, the iTunes Store has removed one of the characters from the address of the podcast feed, meaning it is now a broken link and it is not updating anymore. Once again, there is absolutely no reason for why this happened, and I did not change anything on my end. And unfortunately, listeners who've been listening for any length of time know that we recently had a huge ordeal trying to get the Apple services, the support service, to actually change the podcast feed once it had been changed for no good reason. So... Once again, unfortunately, people who are subscribed via the iTunes store are not getting the uh, the podcast updated automatically in their iTunes, and I'm sorry for that, but I have absolutely no control over it. So once again, I will be trying to get in touch with Apple support and trying to get that corrected. But in the meantime, please take this as an opportunity for everyone out there who might be subscribed to the iTunes podcast feed. Please don't subscribe via the iTunes store please subscribe via the RSS feed on CorbettReport.com. And once again, that is located at the bottom corner of the uh, top banner on CorbettReport.com. On the top of every page, the banner in the bottom right corner, it says RSS feed. Please click on that and subscribe that way. And that way you'll be assured to get all of the updates to the Corbett Report website as soon as they're available. All of the videos, all of the audio. So once again, I apologize for this. I have no control over it, and we will try to correct it as possible. But thank you to everyone for letting me know about it. And on another very different, very somber note, I'm afraid to announce that unfortunately I've recently had some very bad news about a death in the family. And unfortunately that means I'm going to be taking a few weeks off of the website entirely. I will be releasing one more edition of the Last Word series later this week, but other than that, I will not be updating the website at all for a few weeks. So I really ask for your support and your encouragement during this very difficult time. And I will be back in April, back working on the website, so I look forward to joining you all again at that time. And without further ado, let's get straight into today's episode. The International Olympic Committee has the honor of announcing that the Games of the 30th Olympiad in 2012 are awarded to the city of London. London and the UK celebrate Tony Blair. Wherever you are, you have to be high-fiving whoever you see. Absolutely. Okay. We're going to fix our cuisine. I'm glad. Jacques Chirac. Yeah. What do you fix it? First time since 1948. You know, it's rare when you have any event where an entire country can celebrate. And that's exactly what's happening right now. 
What I'm most happy about, if anybody cares, is that the people in France are very unhappy right now. Oh, yes, that absolutely. Makes me, that makes me feel good. <laughs> that makes you feel good. But it does appear as though the top deck of the bus has been very severely damaged. Now, we've been reporting uh, many incidents this morning. One that you know, if you've been watching, uh, is at King's Cross. Uh, we have been speaking to people in the area. The scene who heard a loud explosion and had a witness tell him that he saw... All London hospitals are now on major incident alert. The scrambling, uh, as, it, as it were. It does now to appear to be a major terrorist attack. Just to review, there's been a, at least, uh, it seems as though, at least uh, six, possibly seven explosions, some underground in the tube, we call subways, others off a double-decker bus. We've uh, got confirmed by a government spokesman that there are 20 people dead in the blast so far. We just want to make sure that you're safe, Susan. And we're getting reports of another explosion on Houndsditch Road near Liverpool Street Station. You've moved out of your flat, I believe, and we can hear the emergency service. Just tell I've us just what's happening. Fire, I've just been a fire engine nearly run somebody over in his hurry to get there's been another bang up at Tavistock Square. It was about a minute ago, now I'm being moved on, we're being moved further back. Now coming in of uh, today's uh, clearly terrible events, just to uh, give you an sum up of what's been happening as far as we know at the moment confirmed reports of explosions at a number of locations both on the London underground and buses have been targeted initially we were hearing that power surges were to blame it now looks like a terrorist attack now a common statement is due to be made later today on these explosions we're just hearing that at least 90 casualties uh, were in, uh, have been suffered at Aldergate underground station according to a doctor there Arab sources who monitor al-Qaeda have told the BBC that they believe today's explosions in London are almost certainly the work of al-Qaeda in one of those ironies of fortune that unfortunately seem to strike at the strangest times it was the very day after the Olympic Con Committee announced that London would be the host of the 2012 Summer Games that tragedy struck that very city. And unfortunately, the crowds that had been celebrating just the day before were now mourning the loss of 56 lives on the London Underground and on, city, uh, on one city bus, as well as the injury of several hundred more in what was the most devastating terrorist attack on British home soil in modern history. Incredibly, though, given the scale and the scope of what had just happened, it was the following Monday, July 11th, that Tony Blair, the British Prime Minister, already came out to announce that there would be no inquiry into what had just occurred. From Bloomberg on July 11th, 2005, UK's Blair rejects call for probe of London blasts. Quote, UK Prime Minister Tony Blair rejected a call for an inquiry into the July 7th London bomb blasts, telling lawmakers there wasn't any intelligence that could have enabled police to prevent the attacks. Our services and police do a heroic job as this particular new and awful terrorist threat has grown. They have done their utmost to keep this country and its people safe, Blair said in Parliament today. Last week's three explosions on London's subway system and, on, and one on a bus during the morning rush hour killed at least 52 people and injured about 700. Blair said planned anti-terror laws scheduled for consideration later this year with a view to introduction early next year 
will go ahead on the current timetable. If, as the fuller picture about these incidents emerges, it becomes clear that there are powers which the police and intelligence agencies need immediately to combat terrorism, Blair said, the legislation would get an accelerated timetable. End quote. And so we see the phenomenon of wide-scale terror attacks being used immediately to call for greater police powers and greater restriction on civil liberties, even as the very same government that is calling for that denies the public any sort of inquiry into what has just happened. And unfortunately, it follows very much along the pattern of something like 9-11, And it was not very long before the inconsistencies, incongruities, and outright falsities of the statement that Blair had just made came to light. We can get a glimpse of that from timesonline.co.uk from March of 2006. MI5 facing criticism over surveillance of 7-7 bomber. Quote, MI5 is to be criticized by a parliamentary committee for its decision to call off a surveillance operation on a British terror suspect who later became the leader of the July 7 suicide bombers. The matter will be raised in a special report by the Cross-Party Intelligence and Security Committee. The committee, which is chaired by Paul Murphy, the former Northern Ireland secretary, and consists of eight MPs and one member of the House of Lords, has been investigating all the secret material relevant to the period leading up to the July 7th bombings, which killed 52 people in London last year. Its report is due next month, but some details were leaked to the BBC yesterday. The committee is not expected to blame any of the secret agencies for the failure to stop the suicide bombings, but it is understood to have underlined the intelligence gaps relating to Mohammed Siddiqui Khan, the Leeds-born primary school teaching assistant who was the ringleader of the four bombers. Khan had come to MI5's notice more than a year before the bombings when he was spotted with other terrorist suspects. He was subjected to surveillance for a brief period, but was not regarded as a significant player. At that stage, he was not even identified, but was just a blurred image on a surveillance tape. There were dozens of other potential suspects caught up in the same surveillance operation, but with a limited number of MI5 watchers available, the Security Service Counter-Terrorist Branch decided to focus its efforts on the most serious targets. Those assessed to be on the periphery, such as Khan, were left alone. End quote. And so it is that the first gaps and cracks in the story that these were so-called clean skins and people who could not possibly have been under the purview of police or uh, secret services or intelligence agencies started to show some cracks and that story started to become a little less firm. And uh, Tony Blair's call just four days after the attacks that there be no inquiry because there could have been no possibility of possibly predicting these people would be involved in anything of the sort, started to become an outright lie. But that lie was further exposed and gaps further began to appear in April of 2007, as reported by the BBC, MI5 followed UK suicide bomber. Quote, MI5 secretly monitored two of the London 7th of July bombers four times before the 2005 attacks. It emerged during the fertilizer bomb plot trial. Details of how much the security services knew about suicide bombers Mohammed Siddiqui Khan and, the Shiz- and Shizad Tanweer emerged at the trial. The trial linked the bombers to an international network, which was watched a year before the 2005 suicide attacks. The security services say they did not identify Khan or consider him a risk. End quote. 
Well, the furor which erupted from that story began to grow in the days following the release of that story, and the very next day, on the 1st of May 2007, we have this story also from the BBC, Pressure Grows for a 7-7 Inquiry. Survivors and relatives of victims of the 7th of July attacks are stepping up the pressure for a public inquiry into MI5's handling of intelligence. On Monday, it emerged at the end of a year-long terror trial that MI5 had two of the 7th July bombers under surveillance a year before the attacks. Ministers are opposed to an inquiry, but a parliamentary committee will consider why the bombers were not picked up. Those affected by the 2005 attacks have delivered a letter to the Home Office. The document requesting an impartial public inquiry was handed to an official from the department. End quote. So, once again, exactly as in the case of 9-11, where the Jersey widows were so instrumental in bringing the political pressure to bear that eventually resulted in the 9-11 Omission Commission, uh, here in the UK, it was the survivors and the family members of those affected in the blasts that really started to mount political pressure for a new inquiry, or an inquiry of any sort, really, into what happened on July 7th. And it was not long before Blair, once again, denied those victims any semblance of an inquiry. Tony Blair says no to 7-7 inquiry. Quote, Tony Blair has again rejected Tory demands for a fresh inquiry into the 7th July suicide bombings. In the comments, the Prime Minister showed his irritation over suggestions that there had been a cover-up of what MI5 knew in advance of the atrocity. It emerged this week that two of the bombers had connections with a gang of would-be bombers who were under MI5 surveillance. This was kept from the jury in the trial of the plotters, who were sent to jail for life. When the links became public, there were demands from survivor and opposition MPs for an independent inquiry. David Cameron, the Tory leader, said a further investigation by Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee was not enough. The ISC had previously exonerated MI5 of any mistakes in failing to follow up the links. But Mr. Cameron said... The links between those convicted and those responsible for the 7-7 bombings, which killed 52 people in London, do raise a number of important questions. Given the need to enhance public confidence in the fight against terrorism and answer these questions, can you clarify, have you once and for all ruled out having a proper, independent inquiry? Mr. Blair said the ISC had agreed to look again at the matter, but he denied suggestions they had not been given all the information that was now available. He said a full-blown inquiry by an outside body would divert resources from the fight against the terrorists. He added, it would also undermine support for the security services, and I'm simply not prepared to do that. End quote. Well, I'll save you the details of all of the twists and turns that led along the path to where we are today, but uh, obviously, as you can tell just from those stories, there was quite a bit of uh, twisting and turning going on as Blair and then Brown continued to obfuscate and tried to declare that there was no need for any type of inquiry into 7-7, but eventually we arrived at this point, and this is from New York Times, October 11th, 2010. Britain opens public inquest into 2005 London terrorist attacks. Quote, After more than five years of delay that have angered and frustrated the victims' families, an inquest opened on Monday into the suicide bombing attacks by Islamist extremists on the London transit system on July 7th, 2005, that killed 52 people and the four bombers, and wounded more than 700 others. The inquest being held at the Royal Courts of Justice, an ornate neo-Gothic building in central London, began with the presiding judge, Lady Heather Hallett, asking for the names of the 52 people killed by the bombers to be read out. 
She then asked for a minute's silence in their memory, before pledging in her opening remarks that she would undertake to keep the inquest as open as possible while protecting Britain's national security. I will balance carefully the needs of national security with relevance and fairness, Lady Hallett said. It is in the interests of everyone that these inquests are conducted in as open a manner as possible. End quote. Well, what a hopeful sign that this inquest would be a full and fair accounting of the facts, taking, of course, Britain's national security into account to let the government have the secrets that it needs to have, but that it would be fair and balanced and would meet all of the concerns of those who had lost fa friends, family, and loved ones on July 7, 2005. And thus, the London bombing inquest was born. Devastation, panic, and 52 people killed. But just minutes before these scenes unfolded, the suicide bombers were seen relaxed, laughing, even euphoric, it was revealed at the inquest. Their mood was totally at odds with their actions. Their attacks were indiscriminate. Britons, overseas tourists, Christians, Muslims were among their victims. The relatives in court are having to relive the horror of the attacks. As the coroner put it, they are doing so in the public interest to try to establish some answers to some painful questions. Might their relatives have survived? Could the attacks have been prevented? This was the timetable of horror on July 7, 2005. 8.50 a.m. and Shazad Tanweer detonates his bomb on a tube train between Liverpool Street and Aldgate East Station. Seven people are killed and 171 injured. Meanwhile, Mohammed Sadiq Khan adjusts something in his rucksack on a westbound Circle Line train. It then blows up at Edgware Road, killing six and injuring 163. At about the same time, Jermaine Lindsay detonates his bomb on a Piccadilly Line train between King's Cross and Russell Square. 26 people die in the tunnel. More than 340 are injured. By 0947, London's emergency services are dealing with a major unfolding incident. The buses are filling up as the tube stations are shut down. Hasib Hussain is on the number 30 at Tavistock Square when he sets his bomb off. 13 die and more than 110 are injured. Outwardly unremarkable young men, the bombers were all British Muslims with a sense of injustice. In his suicide video, Mohammed Sadiq Khan made that clear. Your de democratically elected governments continuously perpetuate atrocities against my people all over the world, and your support of them makes you directly responsible. Questions about the role of the British intelligence services have already emerged. Two of the bombers had been under surveillance, but were given a lower risk security rating. Victims' relatives believe they could have been apprehended. Graham Fultz lost his only son. I have two concerns. One is that the intelligence community and the intelligence officers sat on my sofa and told me they knew nothing about Siddiqui Khan, when in fact his agents and his officers had been tailing, tape recording, filming, videoing him for two years. So I need a decent and truthful, honest answer to that. A memorial stands to the victims in Hyde Park in London. Their relatives will hear five months of evidence from 484 witnesses. Tim Friend, Al Jazeera, at the July 7 inquest in London. 
Well, given the authoritative way in which Al Jazeera laid out the official story, the official narrative of the 7-7 bombings in that report, it almost begs the question of what the inquest is actually doing. If we have so much detailed information of precisely what happened, precisely when and where it happened, and precisely how it happened, What's the point of an inquest? What exactly are the royal courts of justice hoping to find through this process? Well, obviously, the unstated truth behind lying reports like that is that the narrative that supposedly describes what happened on that day is in fact extremely full of holes and there are many, many questions that the loved ones and family members and concerned citizens have about the official government narrative of what happened on 7-7. And we have covered some of those anomalies before on this podcast, but it is worth looking into the issue yet again because once again, 7-7 is one of the foundational, fundamental cornerstones of the war on terror and that we have found ourselves living in for at least 10 years now and that has been the paradigm which has shaped our society in so many ways and without asking what these events that shape this war on terror paradigm are really based on and where we get our knowledge about them without really having a full understanding of what happened that day we will perish for our lack of knowledge and it's on that note that I recently had the chance to talk to Tom Secker, who has been a guest on The Corbett Report twice before, but we recently had the chance to catch up with Tom Secker, the documentary filmmaker behind 7-7 Seeds of Deconstruction, which was in fact featured as the first ever inaugural edition of the Documentaries That Matter series on this podcast. And Tom Secker, of course, runs the Howard Beale NewsHour blog, and there will be a link to that in the documentation for today's episode. And I truly wholeheartedly suggest both 7-7 Seeds of Deconstruction and the Howard Beale NewsHour blog, because both are extremely meticulously researched sources of information, which are of great benefit to those who are trying to find out more about this mythical war on terror paradigm that we, in which we find ourselves living. And so that's why I was quite interested to talk to Tom Secker about the latest developments on 7-7, not only from the inquest, but from other sources as well. So I would wholeheartedly recommend listeners go and download the entire conversation if they haven't yet done so. But right now, let's just take a listen to an extract from that conversation in which I ask Tom Secker about the inquests, what they are, when and how they were set up, and what are some of the anomalies which they should in an ideal world, be addressing. But I guess that draws us to uh, other developments regarding 7-7, and of course I'm talking about the July 7th inquests, uh, which have been go going on since, I believe, October. But perhaps you can fill us in on the details of the inquests and um, how, how and when they got started and what they're really um, tr attempting to do, ostensibly. Well, as you say, the inquest, uh, formally started. They had some preliminary hearings before, but it formally, they formally started in uh, back in October, and they are due to finish in the next week or so, uh, at least in terms of the, the hearings, the, you know, having witnesses up on a stand and being questioned. Um, now, it's in many ways remarkable that it's taken this long to hold these inquests. I mean, 7-7 happened in the middle of 2005, and it's over five years. It's October 2010 when the inquests start. So, and there's been a whole number of reasons why it's been delayed so long. 
the, the primary reason are a series of trials that are in some way related to 7-7. There is the trial of the supposed fertilizer bomb plotters, at which Mohammed Janet Babar was the key witness, well, key prosecution witness. You also had two trials of three men accused of being effectively co-conspirators in 7-7. And once again, Janet Babar was the key witness, prosecution witness in those trials. Um, and they took place in 2007-2008. Then, eventually, we get a new report on 7-7 in, in 2009, I think it was, um, and you finally got a bit of pressure and a few people saying, well, surely you've completed all of the things that you had to do. It's about time we held these inquests. Um, and they finally got it together. There's been a whole series of back and forth between the Home Office and MI5 and, uh, and the inquests themselves as to what kind of information is going to be presented and what kind of evidence can be put up in public and indeed whether or not it could even be put up in public. Um, the, we've recently had the testimony of MI5's spokesperson, effectively, uh, and they've been uh, anonymous. We don't know this person's name. They're referred to only as Witness G, whatever that means. Um, and it's a real issue that it's taken so long for this to happen, because all we're really talking about are determining the, the causes of death, the circumstances of death of these 52 people. Um, and these people's families have been sat there being told all sorts of contradictory nonsense about what happened on 7-7 for five years, and now they've finally got the chance to actually maybe get some, some answers out of it, but... As it's turned out, the inquests have, if anything, just posed more questions. Indeed. Well, well clarify for us, what is, what is the scope and mandate of these inquests? Um, how are they set up? Who is running them? And do they have things like subpoena power? Or is this uh, more of a, 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 I guess, an unofficial type of proceeding? How, how does this work? And, and under what um, act or bylaw is this working? Uh, I can't remember the name of the legislation itself. But um, inquests are, effectively, they are official proceedings of the justice system in, in this country. Um, the legislation basically says the purpose of an inquest is firstly to determine who has died, uh, secondly to determine when and where, and ultimately to give a verdict on the precise circumstances and the cause of their deaths. Um, you have a series of groups of the bereaved, the, the victims' families. You also have the, the council, the lawyers for the inquests themselves, who are effectively government lawyers, um, and their interest in this officially is simply to ensure that the inquests sort of proceed in a fair and reasonable manner. But as it's turned out, the lawyer, particularly the council for the inquests, a man by the name of Hugo Keith, QC, um, has been throwing up all sorts of obstacles and, you know, effectively trying to, to protect the government, and particularly MI5, from any kind of proper scrutiny here. Um, it's not in any way the same as a public inquiry. An inquiry should, theoretically, uh, have subpoena powers, have the ability to compel witnesses to answer questions and give proper statements. Um, none of that really exists with an inquest. And, as I say, there has been some back and forth between the, the Home Office and the inquests as to, 
quite what they can and cannot say and can and cannot show. And, I mean, the Home Office were very much in favour of basically having nothing, really, as, as far as MI5 were concerned, having none of their paperwork and none of their, not, none of their testimony being available to the public. But the inquests managed to argue the case that basically this would be ridiculous. I mean, how can you hold an inquest into a terrorist attack? Uh, and not have the role of the security services analysed in it. But nonetheless, we've still ended up with a pretty restricted scope as far as what they're looking at um, in terms of MI5 and all of that. Absolutely. Well, uh, so so let's, let's look at some of the things that they're actually talking about this inquest, because it, it beggars the imagination that in this case we actually still need to determine how people died, but Unbelievably enough, some things have come out from this inquest indicating that there were no no post mortems done on some of the victims or all of the victims. I'm not even sure of the details. Uh, on no, that. no internal post mortems. Uh, actual, without getting gruesome, actually opening up bodies and looking inside them to assess what kind of in, internal injuries and, and damage was done by these explosions. Uh, I don't think they were done on any of the victims, any of them at all, which is absurd. I mean, it's part of the whole story that you have these bombs going off, assuming we had these bombs going off, but I think that's pretty much certain by this point. Um, and you have a whole series of people around them who die. You also have a bunch of other people who are injured. Um, in terms of determining what happened uh, after those bombs, those explosions went off. Well, normally what you would do is perform autopsies on people who've died, assess what kind of force had impacted on them. You would also uh, swab for residues of the explosive, and you would examine the scene itself. You would examine the, de the damage done to the tube carriages, that all of this physical evidence should show you how powerful these explosives were, and therefore give you a at least a ballpark estimate of what sort of explosives they were. Um, and then from the residues and from whatever else you could find, you would establish their chemical composition. That is normally what should happen in any sort of explosion, any sort of bomb terrorist attack of this kind. It appears that very little of this was actually done. As we've just said, there were no internal autopsies done on these people. So they just sort of took photos of their ex exterior injuries and made an assessment based on that. They've also revealed at these inquests, although we sort of knew this already, that when they did the swabs and tried to find chemical residues of these explosives, they didn't find anything. They didn't actually find any traces of TATP or any other homemade explosive that might have been used. Um, so what did they do? Well, Initially, they built computer models, um, and there are news reports saying that these models were first done way back in 2005. You know, a company, I can't remember its name, was contracted almost immediately after the bombings to produce computer simulations and models showing what had happened, so they could establish from these models, supposedly, you know, how the explosion took place, what damage it did, why people died. Um, for the inquests, however, they drew up a whole new set of, set of computer models. Um, and in the testimony from the guy, the expert from Port and Down, the 
the explosives laboratory, the weapons laboratory in Britain, um, the man said, well, we didn't have any you know, proper chemical basis for saying this was the explosive used. So we just you know, put in the properties of TNT and assumed that TNT was close enough and that therefore we could build our models as though it was a TNT explosion. Now, I looked it up, and high explosives of this kind have um, what they call an explosive velocity. It's effectively the velocity by which the wave of force initially moves away from the epicenter of the explosion. Um, TNT is about 5,900 meters per second. TATP, which is what they say was used, is about 4,300 meters per second. So it's a difference of 1,600 meters a second. That's quite a lot. That's about a quarter of the entire scale that's used for determining high explosive velocities. So in these models, it must have made a vast amount of difference to the results that they produced, to the models themselves that they produced, and of course to the conclusions that they came up with from these models, to have used the properties of TNT when what they're saying was used was TATP. It's a very different sort of explosive. Um, so how do we get this story of TATP? How do we, you know, why is it that they concluded that that's what was used when they didn't actually find any trace of it at the explosive sites? Well, because, you know, they found this bomb factory, what they call a bomb factory up in Leeds, which has these tubs with residues of what may or may not be explosive in them. I mean, we've only ever seen pictures. It's not entirely clear what process they went through to determine, you know, forensically what was going on in that bomb factory. But, so then we go, okay, you found TATP in this bomb factory in Leeds, but what connects that to the explosions in London? What indeed? They didn't find any forensic evidence connecting the two. They did find some traces of another explosive called HMTD um, at three of the explosion sites. And they said, okay, this was probably used in, in the detonator. Use HMTD in the detonator, TATB in the main charge. The problem with this, they've admitted at the inquests now, the amounts of HMTD that they found were effectively coincidental. They were the sort of amounts you would expect to find in any tube carriage in the country. You know, it's just stuff that, it's such a tiny amount that it could have just been drifting around in the air or it could have got smudged off something else or it's completely innocuous. And besides which, normally in an explosion, all of the, the explosive in the detonator is consumed. So you wouldn't expect to find any. What you expect to find is the main charge itself, little bits of that that have flown off and unreacted and ended up stuck to something. But they never found any of that. So we're left with this very circular argument, you know, that there were explosions in London. We don't really know what caused them. So we believe they were done by these four men. We think that these four men were at this bomb factory in Leeds. We found some evidence at this bomb factory in Leeds that this is what the explosive was made of. Therefore, that must have been what caused the explosions in London. It's ridiculous. Once again, Tom Secker of the Howard Beale News Hour blog. And once again, that is a very in-depth conversation, which I would really recommend my listeners listen to in its entirety, because there's a lot of information that we go through there, and that really only gives you a slight taste of it. 
But one of the other issues that we covered in our conversation with Tom Secker is something that came not from the inquests, which, of course, as we've just heard, are really causing um, even more questions than they are answering. But uh, this uh, latest development on 7-7 actually came out not from the inquest, but from a completely different independent investigation by the UK's Guardian newspaper. And we get this from guardian.co.uk from the 14th of February 2011. The Al-Qaeda supergrass and the 7-7 questions that remain unanswered. Quote, In November 2001, when Mohammed Junaid Babar made his television debut, it was clear what side he was on. When the American troops enter, we will kill them in Afghanistan, he said. The tubby, bespectacled 25-year-old Islamist from Queens, New York, had flown out to Pakistan, adamant that he was going to commit murderous treason. Staring into the camera, without any face covering, he told an ITN reporter, there is no negotiation with Americans. When they're coming in with the mindset to kill my Muslim brothers and sisters, I will do the same on the front line. I will kill every American that I see. Babar's chilling words, spoken with a New York twang, were broadcast around the world. His dedication to the cause of jihad could scarcely be doubted. Even though his mother, working as a secretary on the ninth floor of the Twin Towers, had only narrowly escaped with her life before they collapsed. He had determinedly flown out to Pakistan a little over a week later to do his Islamic duty and support al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Over the next two and a half years, Babar met senior members of al-Qaeda, including its number three Abdul Hadi and Omar Sheikh, the killer of U.S. journalist Daniel Pearl, and provided them with money and equipment such as night vision goggles. He ran weapons, sent people to na- into Afghanistan to fight U.S. forces, planned to assassinate the president of Pakistan twice, and in summer 2003 set up a training camp in northwest Pakistan that provided lessons in bomb-making to young British jihadis, including the leader of the 7th July cell, Mohammed Siddiqui Khan. According to his own testimony, Babar met Khan at Islamabad airport and took him to the training camp he had set up. There, Khan learned how to fire machine guns, rocket-propelled grenades, and mix explosives, a crucial step towards making the London bombings the most deadly plot to have been carried out on British soil. Now released after just a few years, Babar has paid a small penalty for his role in that atrocity. But if allegations from a U.S. terrorism lawyer are true, Babar may have been working for the U.S. security services while pretending to be a jihadi, allegations that could imply serious failures to prevent the 7th of July bombings. End quote. Well, I'll include some links into some other articles that go further into this story from The Guardian, which has been working to bring it out, or at least was a few weeks ago in mid-February. And the long and short of it is that, uh, that Babar was captured by U.S. authorities and then placed under arrest, paraded out as the star witness in a number of trials, including the uh, fertilizer bomb plot, as Tom Secker mentioned in that previous interview. And, well, he ultimately ended up getting sentenced to time served and was put under probation for 10 years. And in the court documents, which The Guardian was also able to obtain, and which I, of course, will also put a link to in the documentation section for today's episode, they do note that, yes, Babar was working with U.S. authorities even before his arrest i.e. the person who supposedly taught the person who is alleged to have been the bombing mastermind, Mohammed Siddiqui Khan, was in fact working for U.S. intelligence services. Surprise, surprise, surprise. It would be 
laughable if it were not so tragic, and unfortunately it is tragic, as there are many people who have lost loved ones as a direct result of whatever shenanigans have been going on behind the scenes with the various intelligence services and their puppets, which they are puppeteering from behind the scenes. And who is in a better situation to know that than Graeme Folks, one of the 7-7 victims' family members, and someone who was briefly featured in that rather unproblematic Al Jazeera report on the inquests. But let's take a listen to an interview that he gave recently with The Guardian about the Babar story. To hear that the American judicial system praised Barber for cooperating with the police after he'd been arrested or gave himself in... Um, doesn't diminish what he did. He, he was directly responsible for the deaths of dozens and dozens of people and four and a half years is totally inappropriate. If you look at our system for example you get more than that for some motoring offences. Certainly you can get more than that for burglary without injuring a single person. So to be responsible for the deaths of 52 people so four and a half years and be released is, is just and, and say that that uh, means he's paid his debt to society just beggars belief. Every time I hear that Barber's been released or he, early or he was on bail for two years and so has been wandering the streets of America free, in fact I hear he's now, that he's now married with children himself, fills me with anger because it points to complicity with the American Secret Service in his role in Pakistan. And that suggests then that whilst Barber was running the training camps, training people to commit mass murder, that was with the full knowledge of the American Secret Service. If he was running those training camps with the knowledge of the American Secret Service, it's inconceivable he wasn't passing information of people who were attending those camps to the Americans. So that then begs the question, why didn't the Americans tell the MI5? Or if they did tell MI5, why wasn't something done? This week I had the chance to talk to another independent documentary filmmaker who has touched on the 7-7 subject, and who has done a lot of other work besides as an independent media broadcaster. And I'm talking about Keelan Balderson of Wideshut.co.uk, an independent news and information source from a UK perspective. And he is also the documentary filmmaker behind the meticulously researched documentary 7-7 The Big Picture, a very, very large-scale project which runs over four hours in length and is available completely for free viewing on the wideshut.co.uk website, and I would suggest people do so. And Keelan Balderson, as I understand it, is working on a redux of 7-7 The Big Picture, which will be somewhat shorter and a little bit more focused and will bring the research up to date with the, what is now known because of course there is new information coming out all the time so you can look forward to that in the future in the meantime I do suggest you take a look at 7-7 the big picture which does have quite a lot of very valuable information on a lot of subjects touching on the 7-7 and false flag terrorism so it was with great pleasure that I was able to talk to Keelan Balderson earlier this week about the 7-7 inquests and about the various developments going on on the 7-7 front, including the Mohammed Junaid Babar story. And uh, so let's take a listen to an extract from that conversation in which Keelan Balderson puts the Babar story in its context. Uh, yeah, well, um, basically, this Babar character served only you know, a few years of a possible 70-year sentence. Uh, you know, some people are in Guantanamo Bay for less than that. So it's, it's suspicious right away. But um, 
there was suspicions of Babar going back to, you know, all the way back to people's first investigations of, of 9-11 um, because the, 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 uh, the attacks, uh, oddly, his mother was actually in the towers. Um, but he came out all over the media talking about how he's going to go to Afghanistan, how he's going to kill Americans. Um, he was actually brought up in America. Um, and there's literally th these video interviews of him, um, I believe, with CNN and ITN here in Britain. And uh, unless he's, you know, a complete moron or, or was just fantasizing, what, what kind of real hardline terrorist is, is going to parade about on TV, getting himself on a terror watch list straight away? Uh, and it, it just seems, seems a bit odd. Um, the only people that really gain from that situation were the neocons and the warmongers looking to, to promote the war on terror because he said exactly um, what he, he needed them to say. Um, but, but suspicions aside, he basically did fly out to, to Pakistan. Um, he's documented making different contacts, um, setting up terror training camps. Um, he flies to and from Britain freely um, because Britain at that time actually allowed terrorists to operate. Um, we can get to that, that, that policy later. But in Britain, uh, he joined the, the Al-Mahajaroon network. Um, he gets involved with what would become the, the fertilizer bomb plot, which was foiled under Operation Crevice in, in 2004. And while these crevice arrests are being made, this, this big bust on, on, on this... Um, you know, this, this conspiracy to, to bomb a shopping center and a nightclub. He happily flies back to America where he's a known wanted terrorist and is, is soon picked up by, by the security services, which again is a rather strange thing to do considering he, he was a wanted terrorist. And um, then, of course, as we now know, he, he immediately jumps ship and begins working for the FBI and intelligence and um, even mainline uh, news, BBC, London Times, suggested that he, he was probably working with the FBI all along. Not, not just um, when they claimed to have turned him, but also, um, as I discussed in my film and, and, and is now more, more concrete with these court documents, um, that it was on record that Babar was cooperating before his arrest, which could have been during uh, the, the fertilizer plot itself. It could have gone all the way back to the, the, the terror training camp that um, uh, Mohammed Sadiq Khan, the 7-7 seven bomber, attended. So it, it's, it's a really uh, bizarre story. Bizarre, I suppose, is one word for it, and, um, and, and shocking is another, especially um, for the people who have lost loved ones in the 7-7 bombings. Uh, it's quite outrageous that this man is now uh, going free. But as you say, there has been um, a lot of this type of activity going on in, in the U UK for quite a while now. And, uh, and for people who don't remember what Operation Crevice was or what that was all about, perhaps you could fill us in on that as well. Uh, right, yeah. Well, Operation Crevice was um, a big surveillance operation in the UK, uh, monitoring different would-be terrorists. Uh, Mohammed Sadiq Khan and Shizad Tanweer, the, the suspected 7-7 um, seven, seven bombers, were um, on the periphery of that investigation. And there's all sorts of questions as, as to whether um, the security services really did know that they you know, were up to some things or not. Um, 
And uh, the trial of Operation Crevice is, is probably more important than the, the operation itself because we, we come to more of these intelligence assets and, and a bigger picture sort of becomes clear. We have this guy, Mohammed um, Qayyum Khan, um, who was known as Q. Um, and Q was involved in this fertilizer bomb trial uh, under Operation Crevice. Um, in fact, at times, he was considered the mastermind of, of the whole thing. Um, he was a leading Al-Qaeda member in Britain. He had admittedly um, funded terrorism overseas. And uh, somebody called Omar Khayyam ultimately went down as the leader of the plot. Um, and he claimed to have received funding from this Q character. And uh, also, um, what recently was repeated in the inquest was that um, 77 bomber Mohammed Sadiq Khan had also been in contact with this this Q character. Um, there are there are phone call records and such. And um, so, what's most interesting that I I found out of this is that Q was said to be instrumental in sending Mohammed Sadiq Khan to the terror training camp in Pakistan, which, as we now know, was ran by Mohammed Junaid Babar who was likely working um, for American intelligence at the time, or that, that's a strong possibility. Now, it, it gets more interesting because Junaid Babar, who was associates with all these, these crevice characters, um, who flew right out of the, you know, flew out of the country um, as all of this was unfolding into the hands of U.S. officials. Um, after the plot was foiled and, you know, everything was, was put to trial, he's flown back and given immunity to testify against all of these men. And um, funnily enough, the, the, the only two people that walked away from that trial free were um, Q, who uh, is believed to have sent Mohammed Sadiq Khan to Babar's camp, and Babar himself, who you know has later been suggested, and as we now know, was working for the, the intelligence agencies. So it, it's it's... It's just amazing that this kind of stuff can go on. And, and he's not the only one. I mean, we, we can go on a bit further. Please do. Well, who are some of the other people who are, have some of these intelligence asset type of backgrounds? Um, well, there's this other guy called uh, Haroon Rashid Aswat. And um, when Mohammed Sadiq Khan gets back from Babar's terror training camp, he then comes in contact with this um, Aswat guy. And he's again thought to be a leading member of Al-Qaeda in Britain. Um, he even said himself that he was once a bodyguard to bin Laden. Um, he did the whole uh, terror training thing in the mid-90s. Um, he was ob observed recruiting young men in the infamous Finsbury Park Mosque with, with a guy called Abu Hamza. And uh, Aswat's big claim to fame is that he, he was trying to set up a, a terror training camp in the US, in Oregon, uh, at one point. But when it came to in indicting him for that, that, that operation, um, high-up US officials blocked it from going ahead. And this is around 2002. But if we, we skip ahead a bit, um, in the days leading up to the London attacks, Mohammed Sadiq Khan was in phone contact with Aswat it, it was widely reported that there were 20 or so phone calls, you know, these phone call records, and that Aswat was 
the mastermind behind the 7-7 attacks. It was the big headlines for about a week. And um, then a few weeks after that, the story was suddenly There's no mastermind. There's no connection to Al-Qaeda. There's no wider network. These were homegrown um, radicals that just decided to do it one day. And, and, and that's, that's really odd thing to happen my sources talk to the newspaper and all of a sudden it's wrong and what ultimately happened was um u.s federal prosecutor and terrorist expert john loftus comes out on fox news and says that us what was was british intelligence all along and then french intelligence in some articles with with the new criminologist um they also said the same thing so presumably that's why he wasn't indicted on, on the Oregon training camp thing to begin with. And I guess why, why this, this story suddenly dropped, that he, he was the mastermind, that, that they, they no longer reported that. Because it's highly likely that he was another intelligence asset. And, and it brings up so many questions about MI5 and, and, and the CIA and, and their relation to, to terrorism. Because... It, at every critical point, Mohammed Sadiq Khan seems to be in contact with these dubious characters. You know, he's sent to a terror training camp by a suspected asset. He's trained by a suspected asset. And then when he gets back, he's instructed by another suspected asset. It, it's, it's quite unbelievable. Well, as I'm sure my listeners do not need to be told, all of these various inquests and all of these investigations that are going on about the various backroom dealings and understandings between the security services and the various agents that they had been puppeteering and how they were related to these big-scale, large terrorist attacks, which were then used to, to clamp down on civil liberties and justify an even further extension of the war on terror into the public and private sphere of every single citizen in the UK... Again, I don't think it needs to be explained to my listeners just how these inquests and investigations are really nothing other than whitewashes and will definitely not get down to the very bottom of these issues. Because they are not designed, of course, ultimately to uncover all of the details. They're there, as explicitly stated in that New York Times article which we read earlier, to protect Britain's national security interests. And I think it's obvious that if the intelligence services had any role, even tangentially, in 7-7 or letting 7-7 happen, then absolutely it would be in Britain's national security interests to cover that up, which they seem to be doing a pretty good job of by not even getting basic facts nailed down yet, like, for example, what explosives were actually used in the blasts. Just little niggly details like that. So it does raise the question of what is the point of these inquests and what, why do we put any faith in these types of inquests? To one extent, of course, it is valuable to get official statements on the record about various aspects of the case because then that can be used to actually go back and compare with other aspects of the documentary record and look for anomalies and look for discrepancies, look for other points of interrogation, or to see if perhaps the information actually stands up to scrutiny, although that rarely seems to be the case. But on a broader scale, what we need is, of course, not this type of cover-up inquest with no real teeth to it. What we need is a real independent citizen's investigation. And the question is, how do we get from where we are today towards what we want to achieve, which is ultimately 7-7 truth and justice? 
So that was a question that I posed to Tom Secker, and I think he had an interesting answer. So let's take a listen to Tom Secker on the question of what we need to establish in order to get closer to the goal of 7-7 justice. Well, I think what we need is as many citizens in Britain and across the world if it, where people are interested and motivated, we need as many as we can. Firstly, examining these inquests and holding them to account because the mainstream media isn't going to do that. Um, it has systematically failed to do that at virtually every point. Um, we need people to actually understand the information that has been presented, how the official story has gone from the version they were telling back in 2006 to the version that they're now telling five years later. Um, and I say this because in the 7-7 truth movement, such as there is a truth movement, um, there's an awful lot of people who are, it seems, more interested in propagating conspiracy theories than they are in investigating. And so we need to counter that. We need to say, no, this isn't about conspiracy theories. This isn't about us coming up with an explanation of what happened. This is about examining the explanation we've been given and demanding that the evidence that is there to back this up is made available publicly. And in these inquests, they have made a bit of information and a bit of evidence public, but all it's really done is provoke more questions. So the response to that should again be to say, no, this evidence doesn't add up. And, you know, write to politicians, write to journalists, file freedom of information requests, do anything you can to force them out into the open, to make them commit to a statement. Because once they've committed to a statement, or committed to a particular version, you can then examine it, you can point out where the mistakes, and where the lies, and where the, the nonsense in it is, and say to them, no, you have told us something that is categorically untrue. Now, what are you going to do about it? Put the pressure on them, because it's their responsibility. You know, much as I respect the research work and uh, the analysis that's being done by the July 7th Truth Campaign and some of the others in this movement, they aren't there to, to provide the answers. They are there to ask the questions. It's the officials that should be providing the answers. And so we need to put as much pressure on them as we possibly can. That said, there is a reasonable chance that that's just not going to work, that this is going to turn into another one of those questions like JFK, the, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, where 50 years later, we're still left with as many questions as we ever really had about it. It seems abundantly clear that the Warren Commission version is untrue, but we don't really know what the real truth is. And maybe that will happen with 7-7. I hope it doesn't. I really do hope it doesn't. But there is a strong chance that that's exactly what will happen. There is another possibility, and that is... Once we've demonstrated that the officials who are supposed to be answering these questions and who are supposed to be explaining what happened, once we've demonstrated that they've completely failed for whatever reasons to do this properly, that that opens up the possibility, I suppose, of a sort of uh, citizen's inquiry, one that is actually independent from government and one that doesn't even draw its funding from public sources from government. Because the, the problem is however independent an inquiry might be in theory and in law, if it's someone's paying for it, 
whoever's paying for it is going to have a vested interest in what that inquiry finds. So we need to look into the possibility of something that's outside of the private sector and outside of the public sector, because neither of them can be trusted properly to do this. We need to look at another alternative, possibly raised, funded by donations, possibly, you know, along the charitable model, something like that, whereby a semi-permanent inquiry can be set up of motivated, capable citizens with no prejudices, with no conspiracy theories, with no preconceptions of what did or didn't happen, who can look into this properly and who can call witnesses, compel answers out of them, who can subpoena documents and other evidence, and who can actually examine this in a way that it should have been examined since day one. Um, and you may remember in, what was it, 1990, when the whole Operation Gladio thing broke, the European Parliament passed a resolution condemning Gladio and saying there should be a Europe-wide uh, investigation of the problem of terrorism, of the possible involvement and complicity of the security services in terrorism, and of what we can do about this to try and ensure it doesn't continue to happen and doesn't happen again. That's 20 years ago, 21 years ago. But that resolution still stands, and that provides at least some degree of a legal and historical basis for that sort of inquiry, for that sort of, you know, real examination of what's happened here. And so people should, you know, take the impetus from, from that European Parliament resolution and go as far as they can with it. Maybe we'll never get to the truth, but I certainly think we can get a hell of a lot closer to the truth than we have already. The official government-approved royal court-run 7-7 inquest is due to wrap up hearings next week. So I'm sure there will be a flood of reports on the official findings once they are eventually released, and there will be a lot of self-backslapping as the various government agencies applaud themselves for their sterling efforts and their heroic services, and there is no doubt that there were many heroic Britons who helped out in the emergency response that day and did the very best that they could. But unfortunately, there is also no doubt that there has been much obfuscation of what really happened that day, and these inquests are extremely unlikely to get to the bottom of all of the anomalies, which we talked about not only with Keelan Balderson, but also Tom Secker. So once again, I would recommend that you go and listen to those conversations in their entirety to get the broader scope of some of the issues that are really outstanding and on the table at this point. For real news and information coming out of the inquests, and indeed to go back through the archives and take a look at what, what really has come out of the inquest so far, I cannot recommend highly enough the J777 Inquests blog at 77inquests.blogspot.com. And again, of course, there will be a link in the documentation section for today's episode. It is an absolute fount of information parsing through hundreds and hundreds of pieces of testimony and other bits of evidence to really give an overall view of where the discrepancies are in the documentary record and what the issues at stake are. It's an absolutely valuable resource, and I'm sure it will continue to be as the hearings wrap up and as the final findings of the inquest are released. So I would once again really, really recommend all the listeners who are interested in this subject to go to the J777 Inquest blog 
and indeed to the J7 Home, the July 7th Truth Campaign at july7th.co.uk for a broader understanding of the various anomalies of 7-7 and an extremely diligently researched one. But on that note, I guess there is no easy way to wrap up this type of investigation other than to say the absolute whitewash that is about to come down through this inquest must not be allowed to stand as the final word on the matter. There are too many very, very central issues that are left outstanding, and it is only through the diligent efforts of researchers like Tom Secker and Keelan Balderson and the J7 team that we will ultimately get even anywhere close to what really happened on that day. So I would once again recommend people go to those sources of information to begin finding out more for themselves and to not give up demanding truth, justice, and accountability on the 7-7 front, which has served as a cornerstone of the war on terror paradigm. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, reminding you that the Corbett Report will be going on a few weeks' hiatus, but I will be back in April, and I certainly hope that you will be there to join me as we continue the open-source investigation that is the Corbett Report. Some say that terrorism has got a place in Islam. I say they're brainwashing you and morally wrong. It may be true that some imams have placed their faith in hate, but why listen to what a snake has to say? Save your breath for the last days Cause they've sold their souls and hence sealed their fate They framed Sid Shazad, Hasib and Jermaine And on Remembrance Day, they only read out 52 names It's time for a change, and a change gonna come They gunned an innocent man down when he didn't run One down, three to go, said the cover of the sun But they print government lies without a question And nobody seems to stress them When they mention how the terrorism bill grants three months detention and they don't need no judge or any evidence. So I want justice for Sean Charles de Menendez.